Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. We often look to Buddhas and Bodhisattvas as the heroic protagonists of the Buddhist cosmos, but even the most wretched creatures can teach us a thing or two about Dharma. Andy Rotman, a scholar of South Asian religions at Smith College in Massachusetts, is one of the few academics researching the history of hungry ghosts, the denizens of hell who suffer from greed and envy cultivated in past lives. Rotman and I discuss ancient ghost stories in today's episode of Tricycle Talks. And together, we reflect on how these cautionary tales and nightmarish images reveal not only some of the fears and concerns of early Buddhist communities, but also many of our own. What these tormented souls are meant to do, according to Rotman, is to shock us out of selfish complacency and wake us up to a more compassionate way of being. Andy Rotman, welcome to Tricycle Talks. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I have to tell you that your new book, Hungry Ghosts, has been circulating among this Tricycle staff, and it's quickly become a favorite, certainly a favorite of mine. So why don't you tell us about the book? First, it's such a pleasure to be here and such a pleasure to share this with others. The idea behind the project was to create something that others would want to read and think about. So just the fact that your office seems to like the book to me is extremely rewarding. I really loved it. So the book is called Hungry Ghosts, and it's meant in some ways to be an introduction to the world of Hungry Ghosts. The project first started off with uh, translation. I've spent a lot of my time translating Buddhist narrative materials, and I was excited by the chance to translate some of the stories from the Avadana Shataka. The Avadana Shataka is a collection of 100 stories, 10 each about various figures, Buddhas, solitary Buddhas, hungry ghosts, and whatnot. The 10 stories about hungry ghosts are some of the earliest accounts we have of hungry ghosts. This is from, say, the third, fourth century, if not even earlier, written in Sanskrit. And what I found so interesting about them is that these stories were so singular. They really came together to present a composite portrait of hungry ghosts. And what I realized from doing this is how little I knew about hungry ghosts. Like so many, I'd seen hungry ghosts pictured on the kind of wheel of existence, the bhava chakra, samsara chakra, and seen them and their kind of activities there and had some sense of who they are, but I realized I knew very, very little. So what started as a translation became a world of excavation, a kind of archaeological project to make sense of hungry ghosts as they've evolved over time, and then a more modern project, something like comparative ethics, using these stories to make sense of the human condition back then and at present, and then to put the two in conversation with each other. Maybe that these stories could help us make sense of the world around us, and my experience as a human being right now could help me make sense of those stories. So the project kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger, starting with an early historical text, moving through Pali and Sanskrit commentaries on the psychological states, and then moving into the art world to see how they're represented, not just in the Indian world and in the Tibetan world, but also through East Asia and Southeast Asia. And then the book finally stopped because I felt like it was big enough, but it could be a <laughs> lifetime pursuit as I could continue to go on and on. But suffice it to say that learning about hungry ghosts is a really important way to begin to make sense of some of the essential teachings of Buddhism, and that learning about hungry ghosts, I think, can be enormously helpful for humans who are struggling with some of their own darker sides, particularly ways that we can be stingy and miserly, mean, close-fisted. It's sometimes a little self-righteous and deluded, and maybe even spiteful, um, and that maybe <laughs> these stories could help us make sense of ourselves and figure out a way to help eradicate some sides of ourselves that we don't like so much. Well, that's a pretty good description of what I just read. And I'd like to start by asking you about hungry ghosts themselves. What are they exactly for those who are not familiar with Buddhist cosmology? So within the Buddhist cosmological world, it often says that there are five or six gatis, these kinds of realms of existence. We have the human realm here and below us a world of kind of hell beings and hungry ghosts too, animals, 
and above us the divine realm of the gods, and sometimes even the Asuras. It's either five or six realms. And probably many of us have seen it when we look at the realms of existence on the wheel of existence. But what's interesting is that there are many realms in the divine world, and there are many realms of hell, and there are many ways to get to these realms. So when we read descriptions of the ten hot hells and the ten cold hells and the various divine existences up there, we realize that there are kind of many different pathways and many different ways of being in these different realms of existence. But what's odd about the hungry ghosts is that it's really a singular realm. For the most part, there is simply one kind of hungry ghost. Later, there are descriptions of, oh, there are 36 kinds, and sometimes there are three kinds, and Buddhists, for the most part in pre-modern South Asia, like creating these various forms of hierarchy. But in the earliest texts, for the most part, hungry ghosts are singular, and there's one reason that you're reborn as a hungry ghost, and that is the cultivation of what I translate as meanness. This is matsarya. And it's a cultivation of a particular mental state that has, we could say, multiple implications. It's what I think of as double meanness. It starts off as the meanness that is a kind of a stingily miserliness, a kind of holding on to things. And what that leads to is the meanness of acting out cruelly and spitefully. So the Buddhists want to connect those two forms of meanness, actually much like we do in English, unbeknownst maybe to ourselves that we have meanness in these different forms. So my interest, one, was just what is this state of meanness that they describe, the kind of pathology of meanness, and almost the malignancy of meanness, that it grows and metastasizes and quickly becomes out of control, so that people think that they're in control of their lives, but their lives and meanness become in control of them. So one part was just to explore this world of meanness as a way of making sense of these stories, and then, of course, it continues to grow. Now, what I think many would find so interesting about the realm of hungry ghosts is that so often in the Buddhist world, when we think about the realms of existence, we think about the realms that you're born into. So I can be reborn as a human, I can be reborn as a hell being, and we think about these rebirths as having coming with different kinds of bodies. Animal bodies look one way, human bodies look another way, the hell beings, their bodies look another way. But within this Buddhist cosmological sense, there's also a sense that these Modes of existence in the world come with different mindsets. Gods tend to exist in a mental way, in a particular way. Hell beings have a particular kind of mindset. Humans have a kind of mindset. And what the Buddhists will say, for the most part, is that when I engage in kind of high-minded activities and meditation, it's a bit like visiting the divine realm. Here I am in my human body, but my mental state is, for better or worse, divine. And there are other moments where my mind is quite literally in the gutter. And what the Buddhists would say is, ah, it's almost like you're visiting a hell realm. Your mental state is so low. So what the text is really focused on are those moments when we as humans basically have the mindset of hungry ghosts. That's what they're really focused on more than the physical rebirth as a hungry ghost. Because the curse that hungry ghosts have is that they're reborn with the knowledge of the deeds that have led them to that place. So they can't just say, ah, it's the whims of fate that I'm reborn in this terrible realm of existence. They know they've done something wrong. They know that they are responsible for their fates. But we humans are deluded enough to think that somehow, ah, this is the way the world really is, even when we're taken over with self-delusion. So even if you don't believe in rebirth, you're still seeing something play out psychologically, at least, as a result of, say, meanness. Is that right? I mean, that's the real key of these stories. So what we know about these stories is that stories like this were, for the most part, designed for both kind of monastics and lay people. And they were codified for easy telling. And we have lots of encounters that we read about in the monastic literature of monastics interacting with regular old householders and lay people, and telling them stories just like this. So our best guess is that stories like this were stories that monastics would tell lay people just like me, who happened to offer some act of charity, or happened to just kind of be in the way as a monastic walked by and eyed that person and thought, ah, that person would benefit from a story just like this. You talk about meanness, it's sort of a twofold meaning. One, it's stinginess, and two, meanness as in cruelty. We have those both in English, so it's an apt translation, I assume. 
But you also connect it to envy. I wanted to kind of get into meanness. How is it that envy becomes connected to this sort of stinginess and cruelty? So one of the peculiarities of the conception of meanness that we have in the Avadhanashataka, in the stories, is that it doesn't exactly match up with other texts. So when we read Buddhaghosa, the great kind of Pali commentator, he has one particular notion of Pali Macharya. This is the kind of the Pali version of meanness. And when we look at later texts too, we have kind of slightly different conceptions of this same term. So we realize the term is somewhat contested. It isn't simply that everyone has the same notion of what this is and that it's historically nuanced. But often within kind of the history of Buddhism, Matsarya has been paired with Irshya. So this would be meanness and jealousy. So the two are kind of somehow thought to be kind of put together. And I quite like it in, in some of the commentaries, they'll talk about one of the manifestations of meanness is that you find various things unbearable. You know, that this is part of the delusion of meanness, that you'll see that someone else has something that you don't have and you find it unbearable. You'll think about someone getting something that in your mind they don't deserve or they haven't earned, and you'll find it unbearable. And that unbearableness kind of matches both with kind of a jealousy of, well, I have this, they don't deserve that, someone has even more than me. And it's like that you're caught in a web that's psychologically debilitating, and one comes to see the world as a kind of zero-sum game. Anyone else's gain is my loss. So my job is to somehow to make sure that no one gets anything and everything comes to me. And it's not just that I'll be better off. It's somehow that's the deluded self-righteousness. You convince yourself that this is true justice. That was revelatory to me to read meanness in connection with envy and, and to see that Buddha Gosa paired them and others paired them together. But another thing I'm thinking about is the bodies of these hideous beings themselves. I mean, they're covered in excrement. You use the word shit a yeah. lot, which I found refreshing and earthy. And they're eating excrement. And so I was thinking that the quality of meanness and envy, it, it really disfigures a person. And so we're seeing sort of the, the expression of that disfigurement in part, I think. You're exactly right. There's a kind of somatic physical truth to this. So the idea is that when hungry ghosts are reborn as hungry ghosts, they have disfigured bodies. And their bodies are literally like prison houses. So the idea is that they're bodies that don't work. They're bodies that almost torture individuals. So that's part of your punishment. And the tradition that gets passed on in the kind of Indo-Tibetan world is that hungry ghosts have mouths like little pinholes and stomachs like mountains. So the idea is that they can never get enough to eat. And there's that moment of they're always craving, they can never be satiated, which is a kind of a continuation of part of the problem that they had as humans. But there's something more to it. It isn't just that they can never get enough to eat. Whatever they touch and try to consume as food for the most part turns into urine and excrement, literally piss and shit. And this might seem gratuitous, but part of the pathology that we read about in humans is it isn't just that I don't want to have anyone to do anything else. There's a kind of like childlike maliciousness. And we read about it in the stories where people are using urine and excrement as kind of weapons. You know, in some ways, Matsarya brings out our inner eight-year-old or four-year-old. Or monkeys do this. They, they throw feces at yes. each other or at people passing, you know. There's that mindness. Um, we might even think of it, you know, kind of Freudian anal phase. I mean, you can kind of go through it. Mm -hmm. But they're thinking about it. I mean, that's part of the maliciousness is that it isn't just that you want to tell someone, oh, I don't want to share with you. Oh, it's mine. It's that you act out in childish ways with kind of piss and shit as weapons. And therefore, when you're reborn, there's a kind of somatic truth, a kind of justice that you're constantly consuming food, and when you do get it, it turns into something that is kind of literally inedible. You describe these beings as cruel by design, and you mentioned justice, and so we think of the Buddhist notion of karma. This is a rebirth that they more or less deserved because there's this belief in human agency they might have done otherwise. And yet there are people who are drawn to these hungry ghosts out of a sense of profound compassion. Can you say something about that? 
Oh, yeah. This is, I think, the wonderful thing. Hungry ghosts in some ways have paid their price. I mean, we might think of them as almost like people who had gone to prison, paid their debt to society, and then come back out. So there's that one sense of, oh, to have compassion on these beings. But it gets more complicated. Within the early Buddhist tradition, there's a kind of conflation between the world of hungry ghosts, preta, and the world of ancestors, pitra. And there's an idea that any hungry ghost you meet could be one of your ancestors, could be one of your relatives. So be careful about not treating well a hungry ghost that you happen to come across, because it could very well be a family member. And this ties back to, it's kind of a historically interesting moment within the early kind of, we could say, Vedic, Brahmanical conception of the world. There was an idea that when you died, you would temporarily be, we could say, a departed, a kind of ghost. And then if the correct rituals were performed, you'd leave the realm of preta, hungry ghost, to join the realm of ancestors. The Buddhists had this conception that this wasn't simply a temporary state, but a state with much longer duration. But in both cases, it's connected to ancestors. And what we find in so much of the literature about hungry ghosts is a worry about your ancestors, a worry about former relatives and where they are, and to make sure that you're doing all that you can to take care of others who can no longer take care of themselves. In at least one of the stories, the protagonist recognizes his mother. Yeah. So I would hope that we'll recognize these people if we see them. You didn't ask this question, but it's a part that I find incredibly profound about these stories, is that hungry ghosts in many ways are like animals, in that they, for the most part, exist in the same realm as our own. According to more canonical literature, hungry ghosts can either exist in Yama's abode, hundreds of leagues under the earth, in a world inaccessible to our own human world. But many of them exist in our human world, just like animals. And just like animals, they can be inside and out of sight. So what we find in the stories is that it isn't that one needs miraculous powers to see hungry ghosts. One only needs to open one's eyes. And what the text says is that for the most part, we are trained, we are socialized to simply not see these starving, struggling people in our midst. We don't need magical powers. We just need to open our eyes to shed some of the ways that we've been socialized to not see those who are suffering. Kind of protective mechanism we have. We see things that are suffering and we just turn the other way so that we don't have to engage with those painful truths. And what the texts are saying is that, well, you can open your eyes, you can see those who are struggling and suffering and who don't have enough to eat and drink around you, and you can approach them with acts of kindness. It's a very practical kind of teaching when you see those who don't have enough to eat and don't have enough to drink, offer them something. You do, in fact, touch on this, the potential actual roots of these beings, the scavengers yeah. in India and the unwillingness to see them. So it seems very consistent with what we're reading. The oddity about so many of the descriptions of hungry ghosts that we find in the Indian material and then certainly later, especially in the Japanese material, is that the physical descriptions and the descriptions that we have in the visual imagery are basically the markers of people who are physically starving. Kwashiorkor syndrome, where one has a kind of bloated stomach, right. uh, a really thin neck, kind of gangly limbs, hair that's thinning or discolored. And we look at these descriptions and we're thinking, oh, the people who are writing these descriptions and creating these images of hungry ghosts have actually seen starving people. They've actually seen people who don't have enough to eat and don't have enough to drink. These are not mythological beings. These are folks who, likewise, opened their eyes and saw those who are starving around them. And I find that incredibly powerful. And particularly within the Indian tradition of the idea of manual scavengers, these are the people who would remove what is euphemistically called night soil, but that's simply the kind of the urine and excrement of right. others. And they would live in the poorest areas of a town, which is exactly where they would end up having to dump this urine and excrement. And the descriptions of hungry ghosts living on the outskirts of towns in kind of cesspools, surrounded by urine and excrement without enough to eat or starving, simply sound like the poorest of the poor, uh, the manual scavengers who have traditionally kind of lived in India and been ostracized. You have wonderful images in the book. And you do say something about how the images relate to the texts or how they depart from the texts. Can you say something about that? I think there's sometimes where we like to think that the world of image and the world of text kind of match seamlessly, and sometimes they don't. 
And this is one of those cases where they don't. Within the South Asian world, we basically have no early pre-modern images of hungry ghosts. We have one little tiny bit in a wheel of existence in Ajanta, but otherwise it almost seems that there was a prohibition against representing hell beings and hungry ghosts in South Asia. And then, of course, we go to Tibet, and there are tons of representations. So I find really interesting that different kind of cultures were inclined to either represent or not to represent. But in some cases, these representations match with the texts, and sometimes they don't, where we realize that there was a certain visual logic or either a visual license that were taken by artists with their own kind of legacy. I have one sense, certainly when I read the descriptions in the Avadhanashataka and the stories that I translated, it's almost that there are so many terrible things happening to them at once that it makes an image impossible. Yeah. You have an image, you know, you're like, okay, you have a tiny little neck, you have a stomach like a mountain, you're literally on fire, but the text actually has this great description where you're on fire, you're burning, you're blazing, and what it says that these hungry ghosts, they're like an auto-cremation. Their karma is such that they're igniting. Like, they have bad karma enough that they're like setting themselves on fire, but unlike a corpse that could just burn, they're in this perpetual state of always setting themselves on fire, and they're kind of running around in constant pain because they're burning themselves. And they also look like a burned-out wooden stump. Right. They're also dogged by predators, or they have dogs or other creatures nipping at them while this is going on. My sense is that part of the description that they have is that they're meant to be a little overwhelming. You're supposed to be mm -hmm. like, oh my, this is badness beyond what I can imagine. But if you're an artist, you actually have to imagine something and you create it. Right. So it's a different kind of logic. And when we look at different images, whether they're in China, Japan, Southeast Asia, India, they have different sense of what are the appropriate torments for hungry ghosts. <laughs> Who got to think of these torments? <laughs> you want to have torments in some ways that are not fully alienating, because the idea too is that these could be relatives. So hungry ghosts are meant to be approachable at some level, but also pain. And now we'll take a quick break to listen to a message from our sponsor, one of my favorite places in New York City, the Rubin Museum of Art. We'll be right back. Tricycle Talks is sponsored by the Rubin Museum of Art in New York City, where contemporary minds meet the art and wisdom of the Himalayas. Now available to stream is the Rubin's newest podcast, Awaken, hosted by Laurie Anderson about the complex path to enlightenment and what it means to wake up. Each episode in this 10-part series highlights the personal story of a guest who's experienced a shift in their awareness and, as a result, their perspective on life. The first two episodes feature comedian Aparna Narchala speaking with gender non-conforming writer, performer, and public speaker Alak Vadmenin. Each week, a new episode will be released wherever you listen to your podcasts and will feature the stories of authors, artists, wisdom bearers, and Buddhist teachers, because every journey is different. For more information about the Awaken podcast, go to rubinmuseum.org slash awakenpod. That's rubinmuseum.org slash awakenpod. You know, Andy, it's so Dante-esque, these tortures, these hell beings. It is overwhelming. I thought several times while reading the stories, karma's kind of harsh and inevitable and of lengthy duration. But there are ways out. Like, what is the antidote to meanness or matsarya in Sanskrit? I mean, in some ways, it's so easy. It's charity. It's various forms of giving. The best way to stop ourselves from clinging to something is to give. And what's nice about it is the text actually offers are very practical. This isn't a text where you're like, oh, you must engage in these various preliminary practices and other esoteric visualizations. In some ways, it's very simple. It's just a kind of giving. There's a quite beautiful story that's the last of the 10 stories about Jambala. And he's someone who's grown up and he's a disgusting little kid. I mean, he's playing an excrement. I mean, he is an outcast in all sense, but he's sweet. And there's this lovely moment where he 
Here's this kid that no one wants to befriend because he literally puts poop in his mouth. He does, you know, all the kind of these traits, but he sees hungry ghosts. You know, he doesn't need any special training. And the text says he does three things. He sees them, then he engages them in conversation, and he makes friends with them. He doesn't even have anything to give. What he has to give is kindness. What he has to give is friendship. Right. And I love that idea. We're like, oh, I have nothing to give. Well, you can give niceness. You can give kindness. Maybe even give love. Right. You know, one thing I'm thinking about, I think, again, it was Utra. He says to his mother, now is the time to give. Now you can give and sort of put yourself on this path to a better rebirth. And she says something like, I just can't. I don't feel it. And I related to the sense of when I'm not generous of, I just don't feel it. You know, when you're in that state of meanness, say, or, or, or stinginess, it was so human. Yet I thought, can't you just give something to get out of this? You know, she can't. I mean, there's two things. One is, this is one of the curses of being a hungry ghost, is that you can't generate the good karma to get out of that condition. And you're somehow dependent on others. And this is the great irony, Right. Humans who are overwhelmed by meanness, by matsarya, they think of everyone else as takers. And they're like, why can't you just do it on your own? And then, of course, when they become hungry ghosts, they can't do it on their own. They're dependent on the kindness and charity of others. It's the great irony. They're telling everyone else that they must do it on their own. And now they're dependent on these small acts of kindness that others extend them. So hungry ghosts have a really difficult time giving and generating good karma. And as we know, is you can't game karma. You can't give for the wrong reasons. If you're giving for the wrong reasons with bad intention, you've done nothing at all, right? Right. So to actually generate a desire to give, the text would say, is a mark of kind of proper humanity. And some folks lose that human dimension. Why were these hungry ghost stories shunted aside? Why were they not given their due? One of the things that's interesting is that modern scholars have tended not to pay much attention to Hungry Ghosts. My book, as best I know, is the first kind of full monograph on Hungry Ghosts. Although people mention Hungry Ghosts as a side frequently, they tend not to focus on them. I think for many modern scholars, particularly those who want to think about the great kind of philosophical traditions within the Buddhist world, Hungry ghosts are a little bit of an anomaly. They're not exactly rational and clean and analytical in the way certain philosophical textbook truths can be. Nevertheless, I think the psychological insights that these stories offer are real and helpful and beneficial and offer real insight into the ways that humans can be stingy, mean, and miserly in the way that they can act out. So while these teachings might not fit seamlessly with certain Buddhist philosophical truths, I think they fit very well with Buddhist psychological truths and will probably be of great use to folks who are trying to make sense of their own mental states and perhaps the mental states of others. You talk about how this plays out in the culture. Can you say something about that? What's interesting is part of what inspired me when I was first reading these stories is that, oh, look at this, you know, description of a kind of, we could say a mental predicament, a kind of pathology that would befall people nearly 2,000 years ago. And yet it seemed so unbelievably modern. And it wasn't just that I saw others around me who I felt like, oh, yeah, that's a pretty good description of them, but also to see parts of myself in this, right? This moment where I'm clinging to things, where I have my kind of self-righteousness, where I think of someone else as somehow taking more than they should take or getting more than their allotment. And to think like, oh, right, this is me. And that maybe by engaging in kind of these stories and then looking at the world around me, maybe I could put the two in conversation with each other. And maybe it would actually be helpful for others in the same way that it was helpful for me to think about these stories and recognize my own deludedness at times where I'm so sure I'm right and that I've earned this thing and that others haven't earned it. And I've lost that part of my own humanity. And I've lost just how much a simple act of kindness, like Jambala, offering friendship to someone else. What a lovely way to be in the world. I think that these stories help us to see these qualities in ourselves. I mean, they're exaggerations, but we certainly understand their intensity from our own experience if we're honest. I imagine they were meant to have that effect on ancient Buddhists. Very much so. 
Part of what the stories were meant to do was to shock us out of a certain kind of complacency. This is this idea of some vega, this early kind of aesthetic shock. But the idea is that we can become inured to the pain and suffering of others. Other things just become invisible and we have our rote existence. And sometimes we need something just to shake us awake. And Hungry Ghosts were really meant to do that, to be like, hey, wake up, open your eyes, look at the suffering around you, and look at the simple ways that acts of kindness can transform the world and the simple ways that you can take care of others. And I like the idea that these stories were like wake-up calls. You mentioned the word sangvega or disenchantment or aesthetic shock. I'd never heard that translation before, but I really like it. And it's often paired with prasada in Sanskrit or prasada in Pali. Do you want to say something about that? I mean, the idea is that in order to be transformed, sometimes we need to first be shaken. And samvega literally has that sense of being shaken in the Sanskrit samvig. We need to be kind of jostled in order to be receptive. And there's a kind of lineage that we find in, particularly in the Pali and Sanskrit tradition, that in order, in some ways, to attain prasada faith, one first needs to get kind of shaken out of complacency. That's how you become amenable to faith. It's like you have that moment of, oh! and once you have the oh! moment, then transformation can happen. So the texts need to do something to break your cycle of like, oh, same old, same old, same old, and then you see something and the world can transform. And of course, this ties back to the most famous of these accounts, which is the Buddhist life story. In Ashwagosha's Buddha Charita, The Life of the Buddha, the Buddha's dad is really, he's got to make sure that the Buddha never sees a sick person, never sees a dead person, never sees an old person, because if the Buddha saw such things, he might have that samvega, that kind of shock. And then he might be like, you know, maybe this kingship thing isn't for me. Maybe I should go forth as an ascetic. And so whenever the Buddha at that time, the young Gautama, the prince, would leave the palace, his father would make sure that there were no sick people, there were no deformed people. He would clean up the city to make sure that there was nothing kind of untoward, unkindly, nothing kind of not perfect for the Buddha to see. So the gods contrive, of course, to create something for the Buddha to see, and lo and behold, he sees it, and he does experience some vega. He does experience that shock. That's part of what propels him to leave the palace. And I think that there's something similar for us, is that we need to see something, and maybe it might be a hungry ghost, but it simply might be a homeless person in our community who's struggling for enough to eat, who simply cannot take care of himself or herself. And there's a moment where our kindness and charity really will make a difference. And that we feel some sense of obligation, at least some inkling of care and responsibility for other humans. And suddenly we're on a totally different path. Right. Again, I, I think of the mother who says, I can't give, I just don't feel it. And I think everyone understands that stuckness of, of not being able to break through their own selfishness. But the sangvega or the aesthetic shock or the disenchantment that happens really does, when you experience that, move you toward generosity, or at least that's the case. Reading your book, I immediately ran to my computer and made a few donations to my son. <laughs> well, can I ask you just, have you had those feelings of stuckness before and something unsticks you? You see something, you hear something. Absolutely. I mean, anyone who lives in an American city passes homeless people every day. And lots of times you're in a hurry, you don't have time, and they become a kind of target of your own impatience or anger rather than moving you to compassion or generosity. And yet these are human beings. And I think it's really easy to say, I don't have time. I, I'm busy. And so once I passed somebody who looked really, really desperate in terrible shape, and um, I gave him a few dollars, and it kind of shocked me in such a way, and I, and I felt so different when I gave, that I started doing what one teacher at the Village Zendo does, Ankyo Roshi, she keeps a pocket full of dollars <laughs> to give. And I realized that that practice improved my own mind state. I was far more relaxed and less stingy, less contracted. You talk about a contracted state in Buddhism, we hear this often, and it's so much better to be open and give, and yet getting there when we're obsessed with our own needs and our own fears and our own sort of selfish concerns, 
getting out of it, it does require a bit of a shock. And in the same way that, say, hungry ghosts are meant to do this for us, people around us, like you say, open your eyes, you'll see someone who provides that shock. So that's how it works for me. I'm wondering if you studying all of this have experienced a different relationship with yourself and your own feelings in that regard. Absolutely. One thing that I found so powerful about reading these stories is that they were saying that part of the problem is often socialization and that there are the people who do this who are extremely well-educated, who've been socialized, and there are others who don't do it, who've never had any education, who haven't been socialized. So sometimes socialization can almost be a problem because we learn to rationalize. Oh, you know, that's their karma. And there's a way that we can tell stories to ourselves so that we don't have to engage with others and their humanity and their suffering. But for me, the stories now, it helps me to realize to keep my eyes more open to the struggling and suffering of others, to realize that I do have a tendency to either to not see or to rationalize or to justify. And that what the texts say is that this is bad for others and it's bad for me. That by not seeing and by not engaging in charity, it just cultivates more delusion. The real danger of Matsarya is that it leads to this self-righteousness. You're so sure you're right and you're not. So any of those moments where I think I'm right now, I'm like, am I really right? Or is this just self-righteousness rearing its head once again? It's interesting. I mean, nobody wants to be so stingy that they're considered a miser. And so sometimes we give for vanity's sake, so we don't appear in a certain way. So it's sort of interesting when you were talking about, it doesn't really count if it's coming from this place of, say, vanity in that case. We often hear people don't want suffering, but they love its causes. So that acquisitiveness, you know, is a cause of suffering or that selfishness or stinginess. It's not intuitive that being generous will free you. But taking the action, you begin to notice that. And I think these stories really get at just the fundamental centrality of generosity in this tradition. Absolutely. I should say, too, that the images do a great job of this as well. So, and part of the pleasure of looking at the various kind of images is that it isn't simply that the images are telling the same story as the narratives. The images have something new to offer. The images that we get particularly in medieval Japan are so wonderful because we find all hungry ghosts basically in urban centers. There they are on sidewalks, on streets. They aren't hidden in some mysterious place. They are literally hiding in plain sight exactly right now where we would see homeless people on the side of the street. And what I like is suddenly, ah, these images are kind of helping us to think that, oh, hungry ghosts are like lurking in every corner in a city. It isn't some kind of fanciful world where hungry ghosts live on some outskirts in some like magical enchanted lands outside the city. They're right around us. And I find that really helpful suddenly of hungry ghosts being urban and modern. That really struck me. And the cover of what is the Hungry Ghost book, this wonderful story of the Burning Mouth Ghost King, which I could tell the whole story. Should I tell the story? Go ahead. Yeah. So this is one of my very favorite images and I wanted to use it. So it required with the various intermediary to get permission from a Japanese temple and from a museum, which took like more than a year to get permission from both. And then to work with a graphic artist to kind of clean up the image for get rid of the little various cracks. If I can't restore the actual image, at least I can restore my reproduction of it. But what I like so much about it is it shows precisely feeding and caring for hungry ghosts. So as the narrative goes, there is this burning mouth ghost king, and he approaches Ananda and he says, Ananda, in three days, you're going to die and be reborn among the hungry ghosts, unless before then you can somehow manage to feed millions of hungry ghosts. And Ananda is terrified because there's no way that he can suddenly feed millions of hungry ghosts in three days. So he goes to the Buddha and the Buddha says, ah, there is a way. And he offers Ananda a mantra and a special ritual that he can perform for feeding the hungry ghosts. And now this has become a model for hungry ghost feeding rituals that happen all throughout East Asia. And in the image, you can see there's Ananda in the lower left-hand corner at his kind of ritual table with the ritual instruments and the texts. And he's performing this ritual. And in front of him are food offerings. You get three stupa-like mounds full of food. One part is the kind of vegetables. In the middle are steamed buns. 
and on the kind of far right is rice. And you can see Hungary go streaming down and like gobbling up all the food. They really like the steam buns. Steam buns are their favorite. <laughs> and they're hoarding all these steam buns and suddenly beings who could eat nothing suddenly have access to food. And there's a kind of pleasure and glee in seeing them suddenly kind of eat and indulge and enjoy themselves and then kind of go back off to their hungry ghost realm. And there is the burning mouth ghost king who initiated it all, sitting there in full lotus position, but with a steam bun in his hands. And there's just something <laughs> so beautiful. And there's Guan Yin up above orchestrating everything. It's just a beautiful image, but this idea of something so simple, right? I mean, in the end, what we really need to do is just to figure out how to care for those who need care, feed those who need feeding, and offer drink and sustenance to those in need. And it doesn't have to be something elaborate. It can simply be a steamed bun. <laughs> I like steamed buns. So. I love steamed buns. And my hope, too, is that they'll be valuable for Buddhist teachers who will suddenly think about other ways to think about hungry ghosts, but also helpful for lay people who suddenly want to look at other kinds of literature and other kinds of teaching to make more greater sense of the human condition, and especially the human condition right now. You know, I was thinking of what I was telling you earlier about rushing down the street and passing these fellow beings who are really suffering and, and not even acknowledging them because I'm so concerned with where I'm going. So I have two questions. So the first is, you quote Thomas Merton, denial only exacerbates suffering. So it's a really bad strategy to try to push this away. I mean, Thomas Merton, I think, gets it exactly right. There's this sense that our coping mechanisms often make things worse. And, you know, what the texts are saying is we're trying to take care of me, 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 me. But by taking care of me, we just heap on the self-delusion. We heap on the denial. And in the long run, that's a really bad strategy. We as human beings are networked with other human beings. And the more that we self-isolate and don't care for others, that entire network suffers. And when we cling to things too, we just exacerbate our own misery. And we don't realize that we can let go as a way of taking care of ourselves and taking care of others. And Thomas Merton, coming from a different tradition, nevertheless gets it exactly right, I think. And who, though, hasn't felt like Ananda also? This is overwhelming. There are too many. I can't possibly do this. Yes. That fear that there's not enough here to give comes up often in these stories. The part that I like so much about you know, the stories and this idea of Matsarya as people are trying to make sense of it and all the images, it seems like they're talking about hungry ghosts, but they're really just talking about human tendencies and some of the most mundane human tendencies. Like, this is mine, it's not yours, you're in need, but I just want to stockpile my things because somehow that will make me feel better about me and somehow safer. I mean, this is not esoteric. This is very normal. Right. And somehow early Buddhists just kind of had this in their sights, and I feel like they got it really right. And I think we're in a moment of a resurgence of a various kinds of matsarya, particularly in the kind of way that people can be cruel to one another. And so to think really hard about what might be the antidotes to this various kinds of cruelness, and it's probably not a lecture on cruelness, it will be something else. And that maybe these right. hungry ghost images and stories can shake people and shock them in that some vague way to a new form of receptivity, where suddenly they see the humanity in others in whom they hadn't seen humanity before and approach them with acts of kindness. You just said something that's very interesting. Lecturing people is going to do nothing, but the power of storytelling in Buddhism does a lot because if I had just been reading why I should be generous, it'd be very different from reading the story because I really begin to get engaged with, I begin to identify with the characters, and it sticks with me in the way, say, the Vinaya might not. Yeah, I mean, the early Buddhists were master storytellers, both in print and in image. Anyone who gets the chance to look at the world of images from Gandhara or Mathura or anywhere in early India is overwhelmed by just how many images there are. You're like, wow, early Buddhists put a lot of resources into creating images that bring to life these various stories. And of course, now that we find all these treasure troves of early kind of Indian manuscripts, we find that there are stories in abundance. This was a culture that was inundated with stories, and they were really good at it. 
We know that there was a class of people who were basically professional storytellers of various kinds, and they were skilled. It's another kind of craft to become really good at, and Buddhists truly excelled. And it's one of the reasons that Buddhism spread. It's often said that Buddhism, oh, it spread on the backs of merchants, or it spread along the Silk Road, but it really spread embedded in stories. I mean, we find these Buddhist narratives all over the world. And, you know, part of my pleasure as a translator has been to try to create these translations that work for modern human beings. The stories, for the most part, were written in various kinds of vernacular. These were not King James Sanskrit versions uh -huh. of stories. Many of them were written, you could say, in a kind of colloquial language. And the characters who populate these stories are the kinds of people that you'd see on the street. Young folks, old folks, rich folks, poor folks, anyone you could imagine. So to try to get the right register of the stories so that when people will read them, they'll be experienced some vega. They'll have the right kind of shock because that's the point of the stories. They're supposed to shock us into a kind of awareness and awakening to see the world in a different way. And that's a fairly tall order for a translator. You're like, okay, translate this story such that when people read it, they will be kind of shocked into better behavior. You're like, wow. So I spent a long time working on the translation. It's something I take the craft of translating really seriously. And I love it. Um, and my favorite is to try to create stories that work for, we could say scholars, sure, but just regular, ordinary folks. And my favorite emails are always those from parents who tell me that they've been reading their stories with their children and talking about them. <laughs> if a story can work for me for kids, then I've done something right. You know, it's interesting. I went through a little process reading the stories, whether I was looking at images or reading the texts, I began feeling nothing but aversion for these beings. And then I realized, I think this has to do with the fact that I'm identifying with some of the qualities. And then I kind of moved toward feeling bad for them. I think what's so interesting for me is that the hungry ghosts who are physically reborn as hungry ghosts, these are ones who are reborn in the hungry ghost realm and have these kind of deformed and disgusting bodies. I think people might feel disgust when they think of hungry ghosts or they see images of hungry ghosts, particularly in the way that they're immersed in kind of urine and excrement. But they're training us to say, you're focused on the wrong thing. Don't look at those hungry ghost beings who are seemingly disgusting. Focus on humans who have hungry ghost mindsets. What's really disgusting in this are human beings who are overtaken by meanness and act out in cruel and vindictive ways. That's what's truly disgusting. Right. Not someone who just so happens to be living in a cesspool or that person who must suffer because everything they pick up is covered in urine and excrement. And that actually, if we're correctly aligned, hopefully will inspire us to acts of compassion. And that's the idea anyway. So for me, when I see folks who are struggling and suffering now, to try to immediately go to the place of compassion, to the place of care, to the place of charity, and not to the place of disgust. Right. I hadn't expected the book to be so relevant to our lives in the here and now, as much as they were to human beings a few thousand years ago. So it's really a, a wonderful book for many reasons and that among others. I have one more question, if you don't mind. You wrote this book in a coffee shop in Northampton, Massachusetts, where you also teach at Smith College. And you also focus on religion in the marketplace. And there you are, kind of more or less in a commercial establishment writing this. What was that process like, writing that book in that environment? You must have come across people who seemed hungry ghost-ish while you were doing this. I mean, I think that was part of it. It was writing about this phenomenon that is so social. What we find about Matsuri is it's generally someone interacting with someone else and being kind of stingy and modulary, and then other people who can circumvent it or somehow bypass it through acts of giving and charity. And somehow enmeshing myself in the social world and watching the world around me helped to remind me that these aren't esoteric teachings. These aren't teachings that are somehow just on the page in a book. This is actually trying to help us kind of interact in the world. And somehow even being at the coffee shop, you know, being inspiring. You see folks who need something and you try to take care of them. Someone doesn't have change for the meter, you offer that. Someone else forgot their wallet, you do this. And for me to watch how many acts of kindness are happening all around me, 
was kind of profound and I think really helpful, where suddenly I realized, wow, I'm actually surrounded by people who are teachers. They're teaching me by acting in kind and generous ways. I should say, in addition to the coffee shop, we actually have a bakery in Northampton, Hungry Ghost Bread, which is a wonderful, I mean, it's like staggeringly good bread. It's like, it couldn't be any better. And they are those kinds of folks, incredibly kind and generous and caring. And even through the whole pandemic, they did everything on the honor system. You just take the bread that you want. And that's part of what the texts are saying is that, oh yeah, you can look to your you know, high teachers and lamas and gurus and whatnot, but you can also just look to people in your community who are offering kindness to others. And maybe you will be inspired to do the same. Well, that's great. The last thing I had to say was really a comment. I was thinking when I was first reading these, these are stories I'm used to. They're meant to frighten me into good behavior. But no, no, they're meant to shock me into recognition of my own meanness and to move me toward generosity. And so the description in the cafe was really wonderful to think of all that generosity. Andy, it's been a great pleasure. You've given us a lot to think about, and I encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy of Andy Rotman's new book, Hungry Ghosts. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. I just want to say again that one of the pleasures of writing a book like this is getting to work with so many others whether all those people in the coffee shop, all those folks in the bakery, all those other scholars who helped me make sense of the images and whatnot. And I was reminded of the community that I'm in, academic, personal, this kind of large sangha that I somehow find myself a part of, of how much kindness and giving there is, and also how much I've received. Well, congratulations on the book. Like I said, it's a big hit in the office, and I hope it is elsewhere. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Andy Rotman here on Tricycle Talks. Be sure to tune in to our next episode, which drops at the end of the month, when my co-host Sharon Salzberg and I sit down with writer and cultural activist Daisy Hernandez to talk about her new book, The Kissing Bug, a true story of a family, an insect, and a nation's neglect of a deadly disease. We'd love to hear your thoughts about our podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest and Julia Hirsch, with help from Sarah Fleming. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.